The clock says six o'clock, and so let's get ready to roll. Uh, I'm Pastor Dan. This is Pastor Ken. We want to welcome you to our latest installment of Sunday Night Spotlight. I think if you do more than a couple, you can call it a thing. So maybe this is a thing now. Thing now. We have gone from um, talking about Christianity and same-sex marriage last fall to uh, politics this uh, winter. Um, and we didn't this, want to tackle that one. In, yeah, and look too at, close to look the election. What that got us, right? <laughs> so, yes. I was tempted to make this one Christianity and the Lord's return, but. Um, <laughs> Please. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Come yes. quickly, Lord Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I shared this with the board and probably shouldn't share it with you, but there, there's a hymn now that I can never think of the same when it says, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And that is not well with my soul, people. I just need to tell you uh, right now. Was that a partisan comment? I didn't mean to be. So. No, we, uh, uh, seriously, um, our goal, much like Ken and the teaching team here at Hopewell for Sunday nights, is Sunday night is our chance to, to dig deeper, to, to go further than we can uh, on, on a Sunday morning. And, it, and it's not because we want to be shallow on a Sunday morning. And certainly, you look at the last few weeks, I'm not sure we'd call any, that anything but shallow. But it gives us a little more freedom. Uh, we're, we're not tied to, you know picking up kids in children's ministries or getting out for the next service. And so allows us a chance to go through material from Scripture to talk about, take an issue, dig deeper with it, and really think about it um, and what it means for our life. So we, we cover a lot of material in these by design, but then also want to give you the opportunity uh, to ask questions. So in a minute, um, I'm going to have Ken open us with a word of prayer, but just uh, for an outline, this is really our roadmap. We're going to cover kind of four topics today, the Holy Spirit uh, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit in church history, the gifts of the Spirit, and then to talk about the baptism and the filling of the Spirit. Our goal is to spend about an hour on that, and Ken and I are going to tag team that, and then really open things up for a Q&A time at the end. So with that in mind, Ken, why don't you open us sure. in prayer and we'll Sure, let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for this message series that we're in on the Holy Spirit. And thank you for all that you've encouraged us with, all that we've learned so far. And I pray tonight would be just uh, one of those times. It would be a time where we really understand uh, more about the person and the work of your Holy Spirit and Lord, I pray that that would be understanding. I pray that it would be clarification. Our questions would be answered and, and you would shed light on some things that we need to know. And I, but I, I pray too that that would really show up in our lives as well. That this, we never want this to be purely a mental or an intellectual exercise, Lord, but we want this to be life-changing and for us to walk with you, to glorify you, to be part of your mission. And so we pray to that end tonight. We pray uh, that you will help Dan and I to speak uh, clearly uh, and pray that we would be uh, understood. And I, I pray that you would just guide this entire time uh, together. Thank you for the time of fellowship, too, just on a, 
a cloudy, gloomy October Sunday night. We just thank you for the body of Christ and the opportunity to be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, I'm going to go ahead and, and walk us through this first section. And one of the things that, um, that encourages me about having a time like tonight is it does allow us to cover a lot of ground and read through some extended passages of Scripture. And so when we think about this, there, you know, I think of uh, the Holy Spirit in the Bible and in these four categories, the Holy Spirit as he's seen in the Old Testament, so pre the time of Jesus, in the Gospels where you know, we're in that hinge time from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant as Jesus is bringing the kingdom uh, to this earth. The third, the book of Acts, right, which is Pentecost and the establishment of the church, and then the rest of the New Testament. So um, just first of all, when you think about the Holy Spirit uh, in the Old Testament, it's amazing. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, empty, dark, was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It is amazing to see right out of the blocks this reference to the Holy Spirit uh, at creation. And as scriptures continue to unfold, you see numerous references to the Spirit with different characters that we know. Moses and 70 elders who are, you know, given uh, direction to lead the, the children of Israel. Uh, Gideon, a story we saw this summer. Samson, again, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. David, that first uh, Samuel 16 reference is, is when uh, Samuel is being led to choose the next uh, king of Israel, and uh, Samuel anoints him. The Spirit comes upon David, and then the very next verse, it says that the Spirit departs from King Saul. Very interesting. And then, uh, in, in maybe what's a little bit of one of these things is not like the other, you have this last name, right? Bezalel, uh, give or take. And uh, <laughs> this character in the Old Testament, rather obscure, and yet it says of him, uh, the son of her of the tribe of Judah, it says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills. And it goes on to talk about the unique calling for the construction to work on the ark and the to make artistic designs for the work in gold and silver and bronze and goes on to talk about working on the ark and the tabernacle. And I share that story because what you see in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is very present in the Old Testament. However, it seems he was given selectively and temporarily to empower certain people for special ministries for a specific time. Now, we'll, we've talked about that difference already on Sunday mornings, but we'll see a difference under the Old Covenant and in the Old Testament verses now. And you often see this expression, the Spirit of the Lord came upon. But also in the Old Testament, you get these glimpses that something is going to change. And so like here in Ezekiel, you see, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will be my people and I will be your God. And then similarly, the spirit uh, is mentioned in this prophecy from Joel that is later repeated uh, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. 
And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so the Holy Spirit presence in the uh, Old Testament, given selectively, temporarily, yet these glimpses, these prophetic glimpses into the future. So Jesus comes on the scene, and we've uh, read some of these verses that we're going to see later on what Jesus says of the Spirit, but let's not forget some very core doctrine, right? The conception of Jesus. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin, right? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And isn't it interesting that in this Luke 1 passage, then, you have mirrored right, these words to Joseph. But after he had considered this, speaking of Joseph, of an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about the sinless perfection of Jesus, this miraculous conception of our Lord, is it's very important to understand uh, how unique that is. We see the Spirit as well at the baptism of Jesus. This is seen in the different Gospels, but here in Mark, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And this passage or this occurrence is one that's often cited when, um, you know, people want to talk about the Trinity, the different, the three persons of the Trinity coming together, Jesus being baptized, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and the voice of the Heavenly Father speaking his favor over his Son. You see, too, that the Holy Spirit is active in Jesus' life. This is interesting, Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And you know, I wonder, I, I, I'm just kind of reading into the mind of Luke, but isn't it curious? Jesus, full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and he enters the, the most challenging time of his earthly life up to that point. Isn't that interesting, right? We usually, you know, maybe think that, well, the Spirit will always lead us to these places of glory and success and prosperity, but that's not what the Lord had in mind for Jesus at that time. Similarly, this is Peter, and he's sharing with Cornelius. This is in Acts, but looking back at the life of Jesus. So as you know what happened throughout the province of Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. So a clear recognition of the presence and power of the Spirit in Jesus's life. And again, now this is a passage we, we saw on Sunday morning, right, last week. And Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room, I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you, 
right? This whole idea of God in you. And again, we talked about the transition uh, last week, last Sunday morning, but you know, Jesus says to his disciples again, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the spirit of truth will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That Jesus' departure is what was needed to necessitate the arrival of the Spirit. And so you come to this time now in the book of Acts, and I want to read through an extended passage of Scripture because we understand um, that following the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, uh, the 40 days, and then ascension of Jesus, there is then this, this handoff, so to speak. And so, you know, Luke captures this well, and it's amazing when you read through the book of Acts, but even the first couple of chapters, how often the Holy Spirit is mentioned. So in my former book, Theophilus, I, write, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he, Jesus, presented himself to them. So this is talking about that 40-day that period between uh, the resurrection and the ascension and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, he was eating with them. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. My father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So he answers the question about the kingdom, but in a different way than the disciples were thinking. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this Acts 1-8 passage being a very you know, gripping one for us as we think about our mission in cooperation with God's work in this world today. And he said this, he, Jesus, was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, in some sense, you read verse 11, you say, what does that have to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, let's put everything Luke lays out, right, in chapter 1, and you see really this timeline, right? So he talks about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He talks about these 40 days of the post-resurrection, including the promise of the Holy Spirit, including the Apostles' Commission. We read of the ascension of Jesus, and then what we're going to see is this period now in which we live in, the church era, where the coming of the Spirit is to all for the work of the church. Now, this angel, he says, you know, Jesus is going to come back in the same way you saw him go, this promise of a second coming, right? And that's what we hold on to. So we as believers live in between these two comings, but after this giving of the Spirit that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Pastor Ken's going to talk about this as well, but it really does usher in this new era, this this church era, this new covenant era, and it's worthwhile at least reading a portion of uh, Acts 2 together, that when this day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound 
like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these those who are speaking Galilean? Or, wait, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in our native language? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And you can see the ellipsis there just mentioning different places, different locations, different nationalities that Luke enumerates who are at this gathering. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, Oh, wait, sorry about that. Um, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now, we saw that prophecy earlier in Joel, right? So I'm, I'm preparing this this week, and this is a total random tangent, right? You know, Peter stands up and says, you know, these people aren't drunk. It's only nine in the morning, right? <laughs> well, Friday, I saw this picture. This is a bar packed full of Cubs fans in Wrigleyville <laughs> at 7.30 in the morning on Friday of Game 3 of the World Series, which started like 12 hours later. So when Peter said, so it is it's possible. only, yeah, it's only <laughs> nine in the morning. Well, yes. Although maybe the Cubs have been waiting just, oh, never mind. Okay. So, so uh, Peter goes on quoting from Joel, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visitors. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on, uh, in those days and they will prophesy seeing what was to come. This is later on in the message, and it's interesting to see, you know, Peter is preaching a message of the unfolding plan of of God's redemption through the Old Testament to the New. Seeing what was to come, he, David, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay, that God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this, right? So this is the preaching of the gospel message. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, received from the Father. And and it's interesting how Peter includes this as part of his message. The promised Holy Spirit and is poured out on what, uh, sorry, you see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and all the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. Right? This promise is for you and your children, speaking to Jewish listeners, but also those who are far off, and it's language that Paul uses as well in Ephesians of, of Gentiles and uh, you know, non-Jews. Then it says, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added 
to their number that day. What is the importance of Pentecost? The importance of Pentecost is this, that the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost shows that God's salvation through Jesus Christ is now for all people from every nation, tribe, and language. And this theme is echoed with these subsequent outpourings of the Spirit that you see later on in the book of Acts. And so, unlike under the Old Covenant where the Holy Spirit is given selectively and temporarily, Pentecost changes everything. That under the New Covenant, the Spirit is given to all believers collectively and permanently. And just, you know, we see this in the rest of the New Testament, and we've tapped into some of this teaching already on Sunday morning, so we won't spend uh, too much time here, but it's interesting. Here's Titus. What, how does Titus describe salvation? But when the kindness and love of our sa- God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We looked at Ephesians 1 earlier in this series. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And the implication is, and he does. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. And this, again, refers to now that idea of the Spirit being a deposit for the future resurrection that is to come. Now, we're going to talk more about spiritual gifts, but just As an overview here, the scripture makes it clear that spiritual gifts are given to every Christian according to God's choosing, all right? You see the major spiritual gift passages there are listed. These gifts are given for the common good to build up the church so that God may be praised. It's quite a blitz. It's quite an overview, but it is interesting to see the unfolding, all right? The the Holy Spirit is present in the Old Testament, but not prominence. We see Jesus now talking how things will change after his departure. I saw a title of a book recently I thought was really good that, you know, the spirit in you is better than the Jesus beside you. And there really is this sense, this idea of another advocate, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus leaving the spirit coming. Pentecost showing that, how it fits in God's salvation plan between the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and his second coming, that we now are in this church age right, where the Holy Spirit is with us, which leads us then to where did things kind of go from there? <laughs> where do they go from there? So it really, you know, when you think about it, it really is amazing that God brought the Holy Spirit the way he did. So you have this unfolding through the Old Testament, God working with the people of Israel and the Spirit coming upon people, and then the promises of the New Covenant, which are more and more prominent in in the Old Testament prophets, and then it happens, right? It happens. Jesus comes, and he lives a perfect life. He dies. He he rises from the dead. He works with his disciples. He teaches them even after his resurrection— ascends back to heaven and says, guys, this is it. I, I'm sending the promise. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. 
And it's just, it really is this intense time, Dan, I think. And, and then you see the unfolding of the church in the book of Acts and what happens and, and this understanding and explanation of the Holy Spirit in the rest of the New Testament. And so it, it does lead you to ask, so where does it go from here? And let's see if I can do this. Yeah, so the Holy, Holy Spirit in church history, um, what happens basically is it, it seems in a way like things kind of slow down uh, for churches, for church leaders. There, there were really, if you think about it, just these cataclysmic changes happening with the church, right? They, the early disciples, for them it was, were Jewish. And this thing is supposed to be about Israel and the kingdom of Israel and the Messiah of Israel and the God of Israel and the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, this was previewed in the Old Testament, but it was not well understood by the disciples or even by the Jewish first century culture that they lived in, that this was really about the world. It was about Israel and Jewish people, but it was about the nations. And so when Jesus sends, sends them out and Gentiles become part of the church and they're bringing their culture and church leaders are working with all this, uh, it, the Holy Spirit is definitely at work, but it seems like some of that fresh understanding and experience of his person and work slows down a bit. And so what you find then is that for the first 400 years of the church, uh, church leaders are basically figuring out Jesus. They really are. And you see this in, in writings after the book of Acts, after the New Testament, that there are discussions of who is Jesus. If, if there really is one God and Jesus has claimed to be divine and by his miracles and signs he showed himself to be divine and even made statements like, I and the Father are one, and uh, before Abraham was, I existed, uh, which caused the religious leaders of the day to try to stone him, right? So Jesus is making these claims to divinity, and his followers are wrestling with this. If there's one God and Jesus claims to be divine, doesn't one plus one equal two? And if the Holy Spirit's in that mix, doesn't one plus one plus one equal three? And so what are we talking about, polytheism or... And so early church leaders, really for the first 400 years, they're figuring out Jesus. And they consistently mention the Holy Spirit as part of their writings and as part of the Trinity. What they came to understand is one God in three persons, the tri-unity of God, which is a mystery, an amazing thing. And so they mention the Holy Spirit in connection with that, but really don't spell out the implications. They don't make statements like the Holy Spirit is also God in the first 400 years of the church. They just don't spell out the implications. And some church leaders, even they're wrestling with who is the Holy Spirit. Some would equate him with Jesus. They talk about the Spirit of Christ. So there's no separate person of the Holy Spirit. It's just the Spirit of Christ. Uh, some other church leaders equate the Holy Spirit with angels in their writings. So they, they're not seeing the difference between God, the Holy Spirit, and angels who are spirits, but who were, of course, created spirits. So, and 
So what begins to unfold in some of the early church writings you see, first of all, in the Apostles' Creed, written between the first and second century, these simple statements that become a little, little more complex, a little more understanding as time goes on. So in the Apostles' Creed, a church leaders say that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and then says simply, I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? About as simple as you can get. I believe in the Holy Spirit. What do you believe about the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> right. Well, we're what? not going to get to that. Right? Who is he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not part of that early statement of belief at that time. And then the Nicene Creed, which is really um, a statement about the divinity of Jesus and answering the charges that Jesus was not divine, that he was begotten, that he was created, uh, different, different teachings like that in the early church. And so the Nicene Creed, although it focuses on Jesus, because they're wrestling with the Trinity, there's a fuller statement about the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see this. It says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. See that? So now by 325 to 451, when the Nicene Creed was first written and then revised and finally finalized in Chalcedon, uh, you see this little fuller statement about who, to, who the Holy Spirit is, and even a statement at the, the end there that, he, uh, t- that talks about his work that, I can hardly see this, that he's, he spoke through the prophets, right? So you see these statements little fuller statements about the Holy Spirit. And so for the next thousand years, the church, which for the first thousand years would be the the Roman Catholic Church in the West, and then the Orthodox Church in the East. That's another little story about how that all happened, but we won't go there tonight. But the Catholic and Orthodox churches uh, affirm these basic truths about the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay? for the first thousand years of the church. And then the Reformation happened, right? So tomorrow night, October 31st, is what? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, you, Reformation Day, isn't it? it? October 31st, it's Halloween, which comes from Hallowed Eve, Holy Evening, which was a holiday in the church before November 1st, All Saints Day, when all the saints that we didn't pick out, St. James and whatever, we just lump them all together and say, we're just going to honor all these saints. So all the rest that we forgot, we're going to honor them on November 1st, All Saints Day. So there was a hallowed eve before that time, and it was on hallowed eve, October 31st, 1517, when a professor, a Catholic monk who was also a professor at a university, uh, nailed 95 points of contention with Roman Catholic belief and practice, and he wrote them in Latin. So it was really for scholars' eyes only. I want to have a discussion about this. As he was studying the Bible on his own, and God had saved him, brought him to himself, Martin Luther. And, but there were enough things that kind of dented the, uh, the Roman Catholic economy and money flow through Europe, and also the printing press, and a guy who translated all this into German and some other French and some other languages and began to propagate it, that all of a sudden, wow, it just lit a powder keg in Europe that is still being felt to this day. So 
Um, but what happened with the time of the Reformation, Martin Luther, Ulrich, Zwingli, John Calvin, uh, Thomas Cramer in England, was um, really for our purposes tonight, the, the more study of the Scripture, uh, a focus uh, on the authority of Scripture, which led to more study and teaching of the Bible, which was amazing. It was just amazing. And what happened there with the teaching and the study of Scripture by church leaders and by congregation all around uh, Europe at that time is uh, more of an understanding and really more of a return to a New Testament understanding that Dan just walked through of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's really amazing how all of that happened. And so what you see coming out of the Reformation and the writings of church leaders during that time of the Reformation and going forward is a, a fuller understanding, again, of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to give you an example from the Westminster Confession. If you come from a, a Presbyterian church background, a Reformed church background, you would be familiar with the, the Westminster Catechism, the Westminster Confession. And the Westminster Confession is really one of the fullest statements of Protestant doctrine uh, early on that we have in the 1600s. And what you, what you find is a lot of a restatement of New Testament teaching about the Holy Spirit. So I want to give you a couple examples here. In fact, I'm going to move on just for time's sake. Let me just summarize this. In the Westminster Confession, it says that the Holy Spirit took part in creation. Dan shared that, right? Genesis 1, right out of Scripture. That he was involved in the conception of Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, he filled and equipped Jesus during his lifetime and took part in his resurrection. That the Holy Spirit calls, draws, convicts. He makes us alive in Christ. He unites us with Christ. He indwells us and then seals us for heaven. So all of these New Testament teachings that we've just walked through with the Reformation become revived again in the church. Uh, this really is a, a work of God in the life of the church and the history of the church. And finally, the, the Holy Spirit empowers, he fills, he comforts, he guides, he protects us. And there's more in the Westminster Confession. If you were to go online and search this particular confession of faith, and just read through it looking for references uh, to the Holy Spirit, you would be amazed. And the return, again, the revival and the return of New Testament teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so the Westminster is just one example, but there are other main creeds that you might be familiar with from your church background. The Augsburg Confession, 1530, uh, during the lifetime of Martin Luther, was a statement of Lutheran belief that is still used in some revised forms. It's still used today in the Lutheran Church. The 39 Articles, if you come from an Episcopalian background, you might be familiar with the 39 Articles. Uh, that also states this basic truth of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the London Confession, which is looked at as a basic, a really good, by the way, a, a good Baptist confession of faith. That also just states new... New Testament teaching about the Holy Spirit. So you see this, you see this revival of uh, understanding of what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit. So just in summary, the Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant denominations 
agree essentially on what the Bible teaches about the person of the Holy Spirit, that he is God. And Protestants would agree on the work of the Holy Spirit, but what you would, what you would see is a wide variety of understanding of, okay, how does that really work out? What, as, as believers, what do we experience uh, in our relationship with the Holy Spirit? How, what do our churches practice in knowing about the Holy Spirit and our walk with the Holy Spirit? So there'd be a lot of variety there. And so if you think about what, what you've seen in the New Testament of the early church practicing the presence of the Holy Spirit, the walk with the Holy Spirit, you see really what some people have suggested, the Acts of the Apostles really could be retitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? Because you just see the activity of the Holy Spirit through these first 40 years of the church that are, that are recounted in the book of Acts. And then through church history, what you find are these revivals and awakenings just at different times, especially as you get to the Protestant era, 1517 and going forward, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, even early 1900s, which we'll talk about in a moment. But you, you see believers saying, who is the Holy Spirit? You know, how, do, how does he work with us? And so you see these revivals of experiencing the Holy Spirit in different places at different times in the early church, different awakenings. You might have heard of the Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s. A Puritan pastor, a quiet, introverted guy that you would never expect that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. But God so worked through the, the biblical preaching and teaching and ministry of Jonathan Edwards in the United States, Connecticut, that people came to Christ. And they not only came to Christ, but they experienced the work of God in their heart, and there was emotional expression of it. There was a, there was a warming up of a personal relationship with God. That It, it wasn't about, well, I, I've been baptized as an infant. I, I'm part of the covenant. I'm coming to the church and... That's kind of what we do. You know, it was, it was all that kind of, of church practice, which Jonathan Edwards experienced even in his, his own growing up years in the congregational church, uh, was, was more the norm at the time, uh, as it is the norm for many people today, right? It's more church tradition. This is what we do. You follow these steps. And many of you have expressed this yourselves, that I believed in God. I you know, I was faithful to my church and my church experience, but I don't feel like I really had a relationship with God, right? Many of you have expressed that. And that was true in Jonathan Edwards' day as well. And so people were literally coming to Christ, giving their lives to Christ, and, and expressing that with joy and with praise. And singing became, more, uh, became warmer, more spontaneous even uh, in the churches in his area. And he had to defend himself. So he, he wrote some works, a surprising work of God in the conversion of sinners and religious affections. How do we explain mm-hmm. Christian emotion? How do we do that? And so he wrote some works like that. Um, I'm going to stay on track here. So in uh, early 1900s, the, there was, there was a, a rise of Pentecostal churches, 1901, 1906, 
Azusa Street in, in California. But this wasn't coming out of nowhere. It was really uh, coming out of, of, of Methodism in the United States. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, it was Methodism at one time, the 1800s, was the fastest growing Christian group in the United States. And so it widely influenced people. And John Wesley, not Charles, but John, uh, talked a lot about a second work of grace. And uh, perfection, Christian perfection, was a term that he used. And as people pursued that, it's like, well, there's got to be something more. That God should do something more with us. What is this second work of grace? What is, what is Christian perfection? There were different... Um, really experiences of that in the church that people attributed to the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the Pentecostal church was born probably in, in assemblies of God or Pentecostal churches would point to 1901, they point to 1906 and different times that their church really arose. And it, it was a step beyond uh, the, the emotion or experiencing a personal relationship with God that had come up at different times through church history, and it was the identification for the Pentecostal churches and later the charismatic movement of sign gifts with that second work of grace. And particularly for many of the Pentecostal churches, the sign gift was tongues. And so if you, if you were a believer or if God had done a, a second work in your life, if you had been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then you would speak in tongues. That would be evidence um, that the Holy Spirit had worked in your heart, in your life in that way. The charismatic move is simply so to distinguish the Pentecostal churches are actual churches. They're part of a number of different denominations. I, I think at this point there are like 25 to 30 Pentecostal denominations in the United States. But the charismatic movement is really this um, spiritual movement within mainline denominations. And so there were charismatic Catholics. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this. I talked to somebody not, not too long ago who was part of a charismatic group uh, in a Catholic church and said, I'm really enjoying the series because it confirms some things that God taught me back then, right? Some of you may have experienced that in a Methodist church, a Lutheran church, this, that, that renewal that came through a charismatic movement within a denomination. And then you think about today. What is the Holy Spirit doing today? And I, I just a, a couple things there. It seems like that the Holy Spirit is working through our, our worship movements, right? Uh, some renewal movements that are coming through worship. And it's neat. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So all, all kinds of, use David's psalms. You know, renew within me a clean heart, O oh God. That's, that's from the psalms, right? But also hymns that arise in the church. Maybe they're a little older and uh, have more uh, tradition and church history connected with them. And spiritual songs, some renewed songs that, that God is working within us today. And, and I think part of the part of the renewing movement of the Holy Spirit among us is some of that experience of worship in our lives. And I think it's a series like this where we're, we're focusing on the Holy Spirit and relating to Him and walking with Him and knowing how He is part of our lives as believers, that we're not on our own. 
So that's, that's a, a little stroll through church history, uh, many centuries of church history on the Holy Spirit. So. And one of the reasons we wanted to cover both areas is we're at this point as a church in 2016, but we have a heritage, yeah. right? That what we teach, that what we share isn't just what we're making up. So first and foremost, coming out of our tradition, coming out of the Protestant Reformation of 1517 is this, you know, the supremacy and the authority of Scripture as the, the Word of God. And as Ken put really well last fall, that in the end, everybody has a final authority for doctrine, belief, and practice. And, and we affirm that Scripture is that for us. And yet, there is a sense, even for us as Protestants, where we are respectful of church tradition, you know, and I think sometimes people want to make a very sharp distinction between uh, Roman Catholicism and um, Protestantism, that Roman Catholicism is all about tradition, and Protestantism has no regard for tradition, and, and I, would, I would tweak that. I think we, we have and should have a great respect for those who have gone before us, right? And again, not that tradition is elevated over Scripture, but there's also a sense that if, if we're coming up with doctrine that is incredibly unique and novel that, that the Scripture, yeah. you know, then yeah. church history has never seen before, I, you're, you're treading on, on really delicate ground there. And so when we get to, to some of these specific questions that we're going to get to in a moment, it we need to be reminded that we have a background. So Ken and I were talking, and there are a lot of different questions that, that people have asked us through the years about the Holy Spirit. We're not going to cover everything, but a couple of the key areas that we want to touch on are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Ken later on is going to talk about the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the uh, spiritual gifts, there are a couple words that are used in the Greek. Throw that up to the side. Um, uh, pneumatika comes from the Holy Spirit, pneuma, um, and charismata, given by God's grace. So the, the Greek word for grace is charis. Greek word for the Spirit is pneuma. And, and so when you read Scripture, these are where you see, these are the two primary expressions used. Now this is just a restatement of what I've read before, but, and again, Scripture makes it clear that spiritual gifts are given to every Christian according to God's choosing. Very clear and, and important, right? And so these passages, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, the main areas where they see that. These gifts are given for the common good, Paul makes it very clear, to build up the church so that God may be praised. And so this is a sense of, of what gifts are given for. Now when you talk about where you find them or where you, know, you see lists of gifts, um, there are really uh, three main areas, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. You can see the references there, and um, it's interesting. Peter talks in 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11 about that, but in a general sense, you know, about those who speak and those who serve. And then Paul, buried in the middle of 1 Corinthians 7, which talks about marriage, he seems to talk about a gift of marriage and a gift of celibacy, I'm um, glad I don't have that second one. And um, no extra charge for that. Um, but a spiritual gift of singleness. Yeah, you know. And, uh, but it, it's, it, it's random, and it kind of gets lost maybe in this 
major discussion, but when you look at those other three, you see 20 different gifts mentioned. Now, you'll notice those first three are highlighted because um, that, the, the one in the darker blue is actually mentioned in all three, you know, um, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, either prophecy or the office or, or, or of being a prophet. Same with um, then apostle or apostleship and teaching is mentioned two or three. Now, you see later on towards the end, there's the mention of pastor-teacher, which seems to be different, something that Paul mentions in Ephesians 4. But then you have this list, apostle, prophecy, teaching, miracles, healing, helps, administration, tongues, wisdom, knowledge, faith, discernment, interpretation, evangelist, pastor-teacher, serving, encouraging, uh, contributing leadership, contributing or giving uh, leadership and mercy. And it's interesting then when you compare all the two, just you know, a few observations that you can make. This isn't rocket science. The lists are different, but they overlap some. And because they're different and they don't overlap some, the lists are not exhaustive. Some people say that um, Paul and, and Peter weren't even trying to articulate every single list, you know, and we wonder if, if a first century mindset of where they're coming from is different than a 20th or 21st century mindset, you know, I, for those of you been here at Hopewell or, you know, evangelical world, we have a spiritual gift test and you take 26 different and you discover your top three and then you put that in and see if you match with someone compatible to Mary or, you know, <laughs> right. you know something like that, right? But, you know, the lists aren't exhaustive and, and I think we need to pay attention to that, but the lists show us that there is diversity in the body. God gives us these gifts. These gifts are different. They're used, again, for the common good, for the building of the body so that God may be praised. And so now, when we get to the conversation of gifts, you know, one of the really dicey, controversial questions then that comes up is, do all the gifts still exist or have some ceased, right? So of all that list we read, right, um, have, do all exist or some See, so some would say yes, you know, maybe those in the charismatic movement would say all these gifts, including the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, are in existence, while others say certain sign gifts were given for the apostolic age or what we read in the book of Acts and maybe through the first, you know, apostles, but then no longer exists once um, the church was established and the canon of Scripture was closed and there's a term, a cessationist, right, that sometimes get labeled, you know, for that camp as well. And, you know, as, as I've kind of gone on a journey um, through this, maybe just to tell you my little personal experience, I think as a coming to Christ and growing uh, in Christ, my, my influence, my experience would have been those more from a cessationist movement, both with a parachurch ministry I was involved with, with a, a local church, as well as a lot of the seminary influences, right, would, would say that. And a recognition, really, of the, the primacy of the preaching of the gospel and, and, and the work of the church, right? And, and so, you know, you, you process these things, and you say, okay, and a lot of times you maybe read books that, you know, confirm your your uh, leanings or so forth, and you say, oh, good, I found this verse and this verse and this verse, and this authority says this, and so that must be the case. Um, but as I've tried to kind of process it through the years, you know, that, 
to better understand it, we need to bring together Scripture. We need to bring uh, church history, as Ken has done really well there, and, you know, what other Christians have experienced, and, and then, and well as um, experience. And, you know, the Bible is our final authority for doctrine, right? But we shouldn't also go beyond what it teaches. And a lot of times, when you have um, mm, theological divisive topics, uh, sometimes some scripture maybe gets pressed beyond its borders and more is read into it. It's almost as if instead of studying the scripture as it was given in its original context, we, we land on our point and then we draw random scripture to support the point. Now, um, you know, I kind of told you my background and had a very, really influential time um, post-seminary and prime, uh, prior to coming to Hope Valley. Kathy and I spent four years uh, at a church in Kingston, Ontario in, in Canada and really had a couple pretty formative experiences there. Uh, one is involved in ministry. We, we had a pretty good association of local churches. Now, what's interesting about Christianity in Canada in general versus America, especially coming from Dallas, Texas, where, quote-unquote, everyone's a Christian and there's a big church on every corner, um, you don't have that luxury in Canada. And what, what's really interesting is what, what seem to be the finest points of theological difference in, in Texas um, when we were up in Canada, you're like, boy, if you're going to slice it that thin and draw, <laughs> you know, divisions yeah. with, within churches, yeah. boy, you're not going to go very far with fellowship. And what I found and experienced is, you know what? There were people who believed a little differently about me and then this thing, and they were kind of normal. And they loved Jesus. And they demonstrated what we talked about today, the fruit of the Spirit in their yeah. life. And then it, it messed with my paradigms a little, and I think it opened me to say, wow, I, I, you know, not to discredit Scripture that I read, but how does this fit? How does this fit into my belief system, into my view of life, right? The other thing that happened, this is interesting, this little church history in the mid-'90s as well, is there was a massive uh, revival. Some labeled it. Um, others used less kind terms at a place called the uh, Toronto Airport Vineyard Church, where um, out of nowhere, massive gatherings were happening, and there was a movement, if you look this up, this is, you know, 20 years ago, of, of what was called holy laughter. And healing was taking place, and people were being overwhelmed by the Spirit, causing them to laugh hysterically, and the worship was free, the services went for a long time, and it was interesting to see the church in Canada, the church in Ontario, try to process that, that some were saying, this is the work of the Spirit, a fresh new work. Others were saying, have nothing yeah. to do with this, yeah. you know, and much like, quite frankly, Ken, what you were talking about maybe during Jonathan Edwards' time, right? And what was interesting about Edwards is he ticked both sides off. He, <laughs> yeah. He ticked, ticked off people who were stuck in dry orthodoxy, and then he ticked off people who were driven by the emotionalism of it. And wanted to go farther. And wanted to go yeah. farther, yeah. yeah. Or um, were in it for the experience and not the spirit himself. And so, um, you know, I really, those things were formative. Again, not to take me away from Scripture, but to, to help me pursue it further. And so as I've thought about this, 
Um, you know, there's a couple things that to people who come from a, like a cessationist camp that, that these miraculous sign gifts don't exist anymore, I would say that it's hard to say from, that Scripture alone proves sign gifts have ceased, right? And people point to this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 8, 9, and 10, which is actually uh, Paul's love chapter. And Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For what we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And so cessationists would say, well, see, the completeness comes. That is talking about the arrival of the church or the completion of Scripture. And so these gifts are no longer needed. Um, It's hard for me to see that. I think in context, the completeness more is really talking about the Lord's arrival and the the full coming of the kingdom. So, um, you know, that's something that I've had to process a bit. And then those, you know, proving kingdom arrival, that it's the primary reason for miracles, yes, that's what Jesus used to authenticate the arrival of the kingdom. It's what the apostles used to and to authenticate the message. But you see miracles given... Um, for another reason. You see miracles expressed for the sake of compassion. And so, you know, a cessationist argument would say, well, you know, the only reason miracles were given were for this. And um, it's true, we're not in the apostolic age anymore. You know, the new covenant is established. The work is different, right? But to say then, therefore, it's gone and that there's no longer any purpose mm-hmm. of furthering God's work, of showing a glimpse the kingdom of heaven in this world, hard to say. On the other hand, um, I think any interpretation of Bi- the Bible needs to be clear that there is a uniqueness to the Acts era, the, the Acts uh, of the Apostle, to this first century establishment of the church, and that should not be considered as normative. And I would say that you know, whether we're talking about this or or any doctrine. You know, you have these stories in the book of Acts of people bringing sick um, friends so that when Peter walks by, his shadow would pass and they would be healed, or the touching of a handkerchief, you know, and Mm -hmm. have we seen abuses of things like that? In today's, I think we have, right? And so um, I think there is a uniqueness to the Acts era that shouldn't be considered as normative. And I also think, too, and you see this error where sign gifts, you know, don't equate sign gifts with superior spirituality. And that's really what Paul gets after in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, right? If gifts indeed are given by God at his choosing, then, then who is the one to say, well, I'm superior and I'm greater and I have a closer in with God or as proofs of closeness to God? I think of this passage. I was sharing this with Ken before, but this is... Jesus to his disciples, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to remove, to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. He tells his disciples, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There is always going to be a tendency in human nature to go after the new and the novel and yet the greatest miracle that Christianity boasts 
is the work of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit, leading people to know him personally, to become born again, right? I mean, that's what it is. And so this gives us a perspective there. Um, So while these gifts may still exist, they're meant to support the church's work, not detract from it. Anytime I think that becomes a distraction from what the primary message of what the church is all about, then we have to wonder, you know, are these gifts, if they do exist, being used properly, right? And I'd also say this, though. It's also possible that they're manifested differently in different settings, okay? Yeah. Now, at this point, we're in the way Gospel of Dan stuff, right? Like, do not take this as, like, <laughs> you know, Scripture or anything like this. But I think uh, Ken and I were sharing this, and maybe you've heard this as well, of missionaries in um, kind of what I would call cutting-edge fields where there really hasn't been the arrival of Scripture or the establishment of the church. And you hear these incredible stories taking place, right? Um, I'm not going to look at that missionary and say, uh, no, you're a liar, the apostolic age is over, and, and whatever else, right? But when you hear it, you go, boy, this is really more describing the first century and what was going yeah. on there as compared to life in 21st century America, you know? I think of the, you know, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and you know, the Lord says, you know, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, how will they believe that if you know, someone raises, is raised from the dead? You know, and this whole idea, it's, you know, we have plenty here in the U.S., right, to believe. So, um, wow, we're like blowing way through time here. Yeah. Do we want to... We can get back to this. Let's go on. Um, touch on baptism. Yeah, let's go to um, baptism and filling, and then we can cycle back. So, Yeah, and I'm going to trim this up a little bit. So let's, let's talk about uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit first. But l- let me say this, just at this point in our talk, and maybe this will come out in some of the questions, but you know, what's, what's amazing to us as we think about the work of the Holy Spirit and how Scripture describes that for the church, for us, is that God intends to establish His kingdom within us, and the Holy Spirit lives within us individually. And you see this also in the New Testament. God intends to establish His kingdom among us. That... that we, we get to experience God, right? We get to. And are there some abuses, and do some people use it for profit? And, and the New Testament talks about that too. I don't peddle the Word of God for profit, but I speak to every man's conscience, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4. But, but the fact remains, which is amazing, that God intends us to know Him, uh, to experience Him, to be able to walk with Him but to do that, as Dan said, within the, within the guidelines, the good and healthy guidelines of what Scripture teaches us, right? And I think, I think that's what we're talking about. So as we think about baptism and think about filling, it's, it's along those lines. So I think I'm going to summarize for sake of time. So the slides are, you could get a copy of those later on the website. But let me just summarize the baptism of the Holy Spirit and and how I understand that from Scripture. Um, God uses the word baptize to describe an experience that we have with the Holy Spirit. 
And he chooses that word for a reason, right? You see the, you see baptism in the New Testament most often referring to water baptism, to really that picture, that outward picture of what God has already done inwardly in our hearts. That's going to happen right here next Sunday morning, a water baptism. But so when he talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it really points to the same kind of thing. Now, baptize is a New Testament word. There's a verb and a noun and some different things, but it's, it's basically a word that's taken right over from Greek into English. So instead of uh, translating the meaning of baptizo or baptismas, we just took the letters right over into English from the original language of the New Testament. And so it, it begs some definition. And it's a word that means to, to wash, uh, to immerse uh, something into, especially to cleanse it for God's worship and use. And so the New Testament Gospel of Mark talks about the Pharisees of, of Jesus' day, the religious people of Jesus' day, washing utensils and their cups and different things before they would eat as a sign of, even my meal is given to God, right? And we would ask the blessing on the food. So it's, it's kind of a similar thing. Um, so that word baptized, to be baptized in the Spirit, is to be immersed in the Spirit, to be washed by the Spirit and in, in order to be cleansed to worship God, uh, to serve God. And Dan pointed to Titus 3.5 a little earlier, and, and Paul says in that letter to Titus that we are washed by the Holy Spirit. We've been regenerated or made alive by the Holy Spirit, and we are washed by Him in order to serve God and do good works. So it's, it's that whole idea. Um, so when does this baptism happen? And this is, this is where some of the past 150 years of church history comes into play. We sit at a certain time. We're, we're after the time of some of the, the holiness movements of the 1800s, which issued in the Nazarene church and other churches that you all have been part of. Uh, the Pentecostal the establishment of the Pentecostal churches in the early 1900s, the charismatic movement. The, and, and works today or conversations today about the works of the Holy Spirit. So what is baptism? When, when does this happen in the life of a believer? I want to go back to something Dan said and then show you a scripture. Dan talked about the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, of that being a defining moment between the old covenant, how God had dealt with his people, the people of Israel, before Jesus came, and then the transition through Jesus' lifetime on this earth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension back to heaven, and then the beginning of the New Testament church, the, really the establishment, and what Jesus said, the establishment of the new covenant, so the old covenant was going away. It was being renewed in a new covenant. And a sign of the new covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, it's talked about throughout, is the coming of the Spirit. And it's looked at as, it's different. There's a, there's a bit of, in the New Testament, even the Old Testament prophets, there's a bit of, folks, it's different. The coming of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be, for the Old Testament prophets, it's going to be future it's going to be different. So it's not just the Holy Spirit coming on 
leaders of Israel for a certain period of time for us to accomplish a certain task using the deliverance of God's people. But Joel 2, for example, that Peter quotes in Acts 2, Joel 2, Acts 2, that's a good connection to make in your minds. Um, Joel says, in the, in the latter times, so in the future, in the latter times, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people, not just certain people, but all people, your sons, your daughters, your old men, your young men, without distinction. All believers will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's something special going on with the beginning of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what John the Baptist calls that, Luke chapter 3, verse 16, what Jesus himself calls that in Acts chapter 1, and what Acts 2 recognizes as that event. They call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what they call it, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' followers are going to be immersed. They're going to be washed by the Holy Spirit in a way that's unique. Another way to say this is Acts chapter 2, A.D. 33, the day of Pentecost, A.D. 33, 50 days after Jesus died, 10 days after Jesus went back to heaven, is a historic event. It's a historic event in God's history, in the life of the church. And do we experience the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit? Yes, we do. But do we experience it in exactly the same way? And see, that's part of the discussion uh, among churches, among different beliefs about this. Is Acts 2 going to happen to you and you and you and me and Dan? Is, that, is it going to happen in exactly the same way? Are we going to be filled with the Spirit and we're going to see tongues of fire and a rushing mighty wind and we're going to speak in other languages that we don't know but other people are going to understand? Not necessarily, right? I don't think the argument of Acts 2 is that this is a normative event, but I think the whole argument of Acts 2 Looking back from it in the book of Hebrews, New Covenant language, and looking forward to it from the Old Testament prophets, is this was a historic event, a unique historic event. And so that's, that's important in understanding what baptism is, how we experience that as believers today, and um, our understanding of it. So going forward from there, so Acts 2 was a historic event. Jesus' disciples were baptized and filled, by the way, in that moment. Both, all that language is used in Acts 2. But going forward, we experience baptism as well. Um, we do. But we may not have the same expression of it and, and how it all works out. As I understand Scripture, and this is 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 13, where Paul says, we are all baptized by one Spirit into the body of Christ. We're baptized by one Spirit into the body of Christ. And so Paul's Chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, these are Holy Spirit chapters. This is where Paul is thinking about his teaching on the Holy Spirit. And this is the statement that he makes about baptism of the Spirit. That we're baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it seems to me that he's, he's pointing to when we become a believer in Jesus, at that moment of of salvation, that moment of justification and regeneration, some of the things we've talked about in this series, some of the things that happen in an instant, Dan said this morning. Um, 
it, it seems as if the baptism of the Spirit is part of that salvation moment. So baptism in the Spirit relates to salvation. Now, the filling of the Holy Spirit is different, and this, this is pretty amazing. Uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit is something that just means the Holy Spirit gets more control of me. It doesn't mean I get more of the Holy Spirit, as if, well, I'm not filled with the Holy I just have a little of the Holy Spirit. How, how do we have a little of the person of God living within us, right? Uh, it, it's, that's impossible. So the Holy Spirit lives within us fully. His person lives within us. But we're, we can be filled in the sense that we are more submitted, uh, more controlled, more influenced, more guided by the Holy Spirit. And, and that's what you see. You see passages of Scripture in the New Testament that talk about a person was filled with anger. So they, this anger rose up within them and in that moment controlled them, guided their emotions, guided their thoughts, guided their speech. Uh, the New Testament also says that people were filled with awe at Jesus' miracle. So it was one of those, one of those moments of they weren't thinking about everything else. They were filled with awe. They were filled with wonder, right? And that same word, same New Testament word, is consistently used of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so you see things like in the book of Acts. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he spoke to a person. So he's guided. There's, there is a supernatural guidance and wisdom. Uh, the disciples, Acts 4, after they were threatened with persecution, were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. So they were given a supernatural boldness as the Holy Spirit controlled them and guided them. Um, were they making decisions? Was their mind involved? Was it autopilot? No. It was, it was just a supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit. And what's amazing about that is that is intended to be part of our daily lives as believers in Jesus also. So where baptism relates to our salvation, the filling of the Holy Spirit relates to our sanctification, the word Dan used this morning. So our, our walk with Christ, our growth with Christ between the time we come to the Lord and trust in Him as our Savior until the time that we go home to heaven, the Holy Spirit wants to, is able to, uh, fill us as people. And that's why Paul gives the command, Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to all kinds of nonsense, right? Doesn't he say? Why? Because alcohol can control us. Do we lose all of our choice and emotions and mental capacity? No, we don't. But it, got, it influences our decisions. It influences our actions, right? And Paul says, don't go there. Don't do that with alcohol because it will guide you and influence you in sinful directions. It's destructive. But, he says, and literally translated, be being filled. So be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to talk about how that works out. Singing and being thankful and, and influencing others in the body of Christ, right? of combating sinful desires in our lives, of, of uh, Galatians 5 that Dan walked through this morning. So baptism 
relates to salvation. It's a, it's a one-time work of the Holy Spirit in our heart, not unlike regeneration, justification, those works of God in our lives when we meet Christ. Filling is, is a continuous experience that we can have as we can grieve the Holy Spirit and not be controlled or guided by him, right? Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's an experience that we can have. And let me say just quickly about that, that it, when, when a person is filled with the Holy Spirit, I think it relates so much more to what we talked about this morning. It relates to the, the fruits of the Spirit coming out in our lives, right? Filling of the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily mean, wow, we get this zap and, and all of a sudden, wow, I want to be baptized with the Spirit, I want to be baptized with fire and all, you know, all, this, all, all of this experience that sometimes doesn't really get translated into everyday life when we go home or to work and life hits us in the face. I think the work of the Holy Spirit relates so much to God making us into the image of Jesus and the fruits of the Spirit coming out in our lives, uh, the joy that can happen, all of that. Does that, does that mean that God is not going to give us, uh, you know, a bigger, maybe that's not the word, a bigger, but a, a, a more noticeable supernatural experience with him? No, I don't think so. I think, I think God intends for us to know him, uh, to experience him. And there are times... You, you could give testimony that, that you, you, we can be, as believers, overwhelmed with joy. Just overwhelmed with joy. And maybe right in the middle of a difficult situation, and maybe it's a worship song, it's, it's reading Scripture, but God brings His truth to our hearts through the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way. But we can be in a situation where we feel like God just gives us wisdom. It's like, Lord, I have no idea what to say to this person in this moment, but the Holy Spirit can give us really noticeable wisdom, self-control, different things like that that we experience in him. So it's a baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Questions? So uh, we went 15 minutes over and we <laughs> cut material. So we yeah. are, um, Wow. So we'll do this. I know there's some child care, you know, that probably runs out at 7.30. We'll take time for questions. If you need to step out now or anytime soon, uh, we won't, you know, just go ahead and do that. And we'll just open it up. If you have a question, raise your hand. Um, say what your question is. We'll repeat it just so everyone can hear it, and then we will go from there. We have a question in the back. We expect that from you, Jan Zimmerman. Oh. <laughs> but when I was younger, yeah, Holy Ghost. Yeah, good Bible translation question. Yeah, yeah, good question. So Jan is asking. You know, in prior years and in some of the older translations, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Holy Ghost, right? And it, it really is an older English language that was used. You find that very often in 
the King James Version and some of the earlier versions that that came from, Geneva Bible, et cetera, Wycliffe Translation. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, the English word that people most often thought of when they were translating the New Testament word pneuma. Um, but, but the word is, is really more accurately, and especially today with our usage, it is more accurately translated spirit, pneuma. Yeah. You know, we, uh, we said that Greek word pneuma, we think of English like pneumatic tools. Yeah. Like power tools. Pneumonia, air wind, tools, wind. Yeah. Wind, force, yeah. Um, and it is interesting, though, Ken, there are pockets of Christendom today that still refer to the Spirit as the Holy Ghost. And, and in some cases, almost a, yeah. like a superior manifest. Yeah. It, it's a little yeah. out there on the fringe yeah. for me, but yeah. Yeah, I think so. Great question. Yeah, good question. See another hand back here. I want to make sure we don't. So here, then back there. Yeah. Yeah. Acts is a unique time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, I, all of Acts or the the beginning of Acts, like Acts one and two, is what are you thinking? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, t I'll take a, that's a big topic. We can even talk more afterward about that in some detail with yeah. both Dan and I. But I'll take a swing. I mean, you've heard Dan talk a little bit about that, and I would totally agree with what Dan said. Here's, here's another, maybe another perspective on that. And, and that is... I think what you find through all of Scripture, so think about this with me for just a moment, is, is God, God doing specially and visibly miraculous things at different times, but not all times. So, for example, when you come to the time of the Exodus, God says, and he uses this language throughout that entire time of delivering his people from the land of Egypt, he says, I'm going to reveal myself to you, really, this is my language now, but in a special way, so that you will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. So you will know that I am the Lord because I am going to bring all these judgments and signs upon Egypt. I'm going to deliver you with a mighty hand. And God himself says a number of times through Exodus um, that I have not revealed myself this way to you in the past, but I'm revealing myself this way now so that you, and there's a purpose, so that you may know that I am the Lord. And so you see all of these miracles unfolding, right? But does God continue to do that in the life of the night when Joshua settles the tribes in Canaan and, you know, are there miracles? Does God work with this? Absolutely. But do you see this kind of intense period of sign miracles? Not necessarily. Likewise, the prophets. So some, two of Israel's first prophets, Elijah and Elisha, God used them to work some amazing miracles, even to raising someone from the dead. But did all the prophets work miracles like that, right? Did they? No. You, you don't read about that. 
And coming to the New Testament, the time of Jesus, again, a, a special time, Jesus worked miracles. Some he identifies as signs. Some were, as Dan said, just God breaking into our world yeah. and showing compassion, body, soul, and spirit, right? And you see that, see that kind of sign miracles going through the, the time of the apostles. And, but do you see a continuation of that kind of period of miracles after the time of the apostles? Not as much. I mean, does God, can God? Of course. Of course he's God. Can he break in miraculously into time and space and into our lives? Yes, he can. But was there this special time? But what you do read in the church fathers, uh, uh, Clement, Clement of Rome would be one, uh, Tertullian and some others, what you read is they look back on this time of the apostles and the establishment of the church as a special time, uh, a unique time. And they look at the apostles as the, the pillars, the foundations of the church, the ones that God used to establish the church. And they mention that God used them to establish the church through signs and wonders or signs and miracles. Yeah. So, and it's going to happen again. Book of Revelation, right? Two prophets, they will work miracles. Yeah. So. And I would just say, too, you know, when we talk about things like the, the appearance of speaking in tongues and acts, it, it, it seems different yeah. than 1 Corinthians, right? So Acts chapter 2, it is an authentication. It is the articulation of uh, understandable languages. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be the case in 1 Corinthians. Similarly, you know, words of, of prophecy that you see in Acts seem different than perhaps how the gift is spoken of in 1 Corinthians. And so I, I think there's a sense... Again, not, it, it's, it is different and unique with what is trying to be established, God breaking through with his kingdom. And so you, you wonder about, you know, someone like Benny Hinn or something. You're like, mm -hmm. what is God doing or what is the purpose and why would he have these gifts? Yeah. Yeah. in such a way, right? Yeah. And um, I, I think it was Peter who said, silver and gold, I have none, but what I give to you, get up and walk in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, that would be a difference. Yeah. Silver and gold, I have none, versus please yeah. call in yeah. and make your next donation. I, yeah. Just, well, and it yeah. is. And part of it's not just, I totally agree, Dan. It's, it's not... It's not what we see out here, but Jesus says this, Matthew 6. He says, Be, beware of wolves in the church, right? And I'm not identifying there. I'm just saying that God gives us some discernment. And Jesus says three times in that passage, Matthew 6, he says, by their fruit you will know them. So there can be this, they're dressed up in sheep's clothing, whoever, it could be, I mean, whoever it is. But God says, Look at the fruit of their life over time. Pull back the curtain and look at the whole story, not just what we're seeing initially, right? And that's, that's where, honestly, even, even by the standards of 1 Corinthians 12, it, that some modern-day so-called healers or what it can, can fail the test of just integrity and character, humility, um, and we need to be careful of that. We do. 
Yeah. Good. Uh, question back there. Oh, good question. Yeah, so Ellen asked the question, in addition to scripture, are there some resources, websites, books that we would recommend to learn more about the work of the Holy Spirit? So, wow. what would you say? Yeah. 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 You know, actually, one of, one of my favorite resources that is fairly accessible, I think, is... Um, the ESV Study Bible, yeah. and um, it, it's the English Standard Version Study Bible. I would say, bar none, has the best notes on passages, even when you come to the more, quote-unquote, controversial passages, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the layout options with a preference, and yet done so in a way that it's not an academic book this thick. And, and what's good about that is it's, um, you know, we, you know, there's a couple systematic theologies that, that we could, you know, recommend as well. But what's good about that is that you're forced to read the passage and then it drills you down into notes on that passage. That actually is the first one that comes to mind and, and is a, you know, it's a go-to for mm -hmm. me. Um, That'd be good. I, I think a good basic book, you've heard us mention this, I think it's part of the series, but Francis Chan's Forgotten God. So some of the biblical surveys and basics about the Holy Spirit are in that book. And he also just, I think he does a really good job in that book of nudging us personally. It's like, how are you relating to the Holy Spirit, right? I think the book is really good for that. Uh, and Ellen, I'd, I'd say, you know, knowing you as well, you know, you're in the Word and been walking with Christ for some time. If there are particular questions, feel free to look at some uh, church confessional statements, I think of the, the Assembly of God statement of belief. Just take, take a look at that. Assembly of God, there's some wonderful, wonderful churches. But historically, they have a particular bent in how they talk about and understand the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you can look at that, compare it with Scripture, with something like the ESV Study Bible, and work through it that way as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, it's good to look at one of the reasons sources. I am a little slow is I think a lot of the formative books that I read probably are a little dated. You yeah. know, Charles yeah. Stanley actually has a great book. I'm, I'm drawing a, a blank on that. But for just a, a basic overview, I want to say The Spirit-Filled Life might yeah. be the title of that, but good accessible work. Yeah, Wayne Grudem, that would be Bible Doctrine, a book that we use in our commendation process here. A good biblical section on the Holy Spirit. Just very well laid out. Yeah. Conform to his image. Another good book by oh, Ken Boa. B O B O A. Ken Boa. Yeah. yeah well, good section well on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I saw somebody. Was it? Yes, sir. Oh, yeah, kind of overall good Christian authors. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I mentioned one, Francis Chan. 
uh, more younger younger authors. There, and can um, I just pick up on that? You know what's really interesting about Francis Chan, and I'm going to mention a couple more names. Um, it's wild to say younger because they're younger than us, and yet, there yeah. really is this emergence of men and women who are taking classic biblical doctrine and restating it yeah. for contemporary um, audiences, including younger audiences. So uh, Francis Chan is one, Matt Chandler is another, um, uh, Kevin DeYoung is another. These are, are, are guys who just are, are leading well, they're, they're solid. And again, um, going back to what I said before, biblical and yet respectful of church tradition, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and not, and again, trying to reach contemporary and younger audiences and yet staying faithful to, you know, their roots and where they've come yeah, from. I think so. Yeah, that would be some that we'd recommend. Yes. Okay. Oh, great question. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great question. Yeah. Good question. So this brother is asking um, if, if the, we talked about the activity of the Holy Spirit, especially in the church era, the time between Jesus' first and second comings, and so where does that leave God the Father and God the Son and Jesus? Are, do they have more passive roles? And let me just say, I mean, this is where language can get a little confusing if we don't understand it in context. It's when we read scriptures about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? Or that he, after accomplishing his cross work and resurrection, that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And you can kind of picture this. And I did. Early on in my Christian life, I came to Christ as a, a young teen, and I was just starting to learn the Bible, fairly unchurched. And the first time I heard a message or read the Bible, I forget which happened when, but um, I thought about that. It's like, oh, yeah, he, he got to relax <laughs> after that. You know, it's like Jesus like, yeah, 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 yeah. where's the remote? You know, it's like, let's watch what's happening on earth. Yeah. Um, but, so Dan, feel free to jump in here, but, I, but here's, here's what I... Well, yeah. here's what I will say. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the language of Scripture is not as... It's either not as precise as we want it to be, or it's too precise. Paul is very clear in talking about our union with Christ. Yeah. We yeah. are in Christ. He even says... Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then you go, well, wait it. I thought it was the Holy Spirit. So is he talking yeah. about the Holy Spirit yeah. in Jesus? And I think Paul, Dionysus would go, yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we want, we yeah. want to be able yeah. to slice it cleaner. And, you know, I think this whole advent of, you know, what we call systematic theology is, 
I think it's more of a modern invention, you know, of, of kind of a scientific Roman numeral one, capital A, one, small, a, you know, and we want it to be clinical and clean, and, and I think so. So Jesus is a very active role, right? He intercedes yeah. for us. He, yeah. he pleads for us, right, in the spirit, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I would say there are active roles. It's different, but there is clearly a union with Christ, yeah. And, yeah. and Jesus is alive in it. I, yeah. it, it. And when you when you think about you're thinking theologically here. When you look at salvation history, right? How God unfolded His plan from literally from creation up to this point tonight. It it really is amazing. And Jesus sitting to start there. I mean, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's it's like us saying. This is my right-hand person. You know, this, this person is active with me and uh, in my business or whatever. This is my right-hand guy. This is my right-hand gal, right? And that's, that's the idea of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's a, it's a position of leadership. It's a position of authority. And so when Jesus says, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth and therefore, go and make disciples, right? It's, it's, a, it's a statement of leadership of the church, isn't it? And so Jesus is the head of the church, which, which is, which is an, also a, an authoritative. He's the, he's the CEO. He's the, he's the bottom line leader of our church. Uh, our church belongs to He's the owner of our church. And judging from Revelation 2 to 3, that's another passage I'd point you to. Um, judging from Revelation 2 to 3, of Jesus in New Testament times having such intimate knowledge, intimate encouragement, intimate evaluation of seven actual New Testament churches in Asia Minor that John ministered to, John the Apostle, um, Jesus is involved in our church and his churches in this community and around the world in, at that level of intimacy. Wow. Yes. Wow. And leading us. And what's amazing to think about, you know, we've talked about this time. When you think about it, um, Dan, you have to help me with the reference of the past, but we live in a time, and the New Testament says, the time upon whom the end of the ages have come, right? We live in a special time. Esther said, um, God, God has raised uh, me up for such a time as this. And the truth is, God has chosen us to live in such a time as this. And what is this time? It's, it's a time of the, the time of the Spirit, where we have the, the Word of God complete, the the message of the gospel to take to all nations, mm. uh, the, the, the full work of the Holy Spirit in this time of the church. But it's not a time that lasts forever, right? Peter called it right away, birthday of the church. He said, last days. We're in the last days. And some people look at last days like, okay, what's happening in Israel? And Russia is right in Syria. You know, and some of those things, it makes me look and say, wow, okay, maybe the last of the last days. But biblically speaking, from the birthday of the church until Jesus comes again, we live in the last days, the time of God's offer of forgiveness to the world, 
the time of the full work of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God being complete and accessible to us, the technology that makes that possible in a way like never, ever before. And so it's like, how do we live in such a time as this, right? How should we then live? And that's, I think, where the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us in how we live every day. So yeah, I mean, so for Jesus being active and this being the Father's plan and the Father being active in this, this time, I would think, biblically speaking, salvation history, that, how can we say this? But it seemed like God the Father and God the Son would be even increasingly active, although they've always been active, so I'm not sure that's a, <laughs> if I'd say it that way, but you know what I'm saying, right? This is a very special time, yeah. Good. So, all right. Now we can, it's okay. 740, so if anybody has children, we need to let you go, but it, we will hang around at least for a while, as long as you want. Not we'll to take the end one of the or age. two more, and yeah, maybe we'll we shoot for like 745. Yeah. yeah. Got a question here, yes. Yeah. Ed and then Luis. Yeah. Good question. So Ed's, let me just restate the question then. But Ed's question was, when we take communion, in a nutshell, Ed, make sure I'm saying this correctly, but um, how is the Holy Spirit involved in that? Is it when we take the elements, the bread and the, the juice, is that symbolic or is it, are you saying, it, could it be actual or could people understand it as actually receiving the Holy Spirit? That's a good question. Yeah, and part of that covenant. Yeah. I'll take a swing at that one. Then. Well, yeah. so when we talk about Christendom, there's a few different views of communion, right? That in Roman Catholicism and communion, the idea is that the literal body and blood of Christ are being consumed. Uh, you can help me with that. In, in the Lutheran Church, Jesus is in, above, and around, under. Yeah, yeah. Under. yeah. yeah. <laughs> In the elements, there is a sense, too, in some Reformed churches where the presence of Christ is there, but not necessarily part of the elements. And then in more maybe Baptistic, in other circles, it's kind of pure symbolism, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'd say we are kind of somewhere in between those two. It is a remembrance, right? Do this in remembrance of me, no question about it. But is it a spiritual encounter? I, I think it is. I think it's a time of worship where we are open to God speaking to us in special ways. Now, I don't ask me to articulate that mm -hmm. any further, but mm -hmm. I think it goes back to, to what Ken was saying. Even when he was walking through history, he was walking through of the story of Jonathan Edwards. I think there is a tendency in some of us just to slip into ritual and dry orthodoxy. And I think if we are open and to what God wants to do in that moment, um, again, it's not, the, you know, I love what Ken said about the filling. It's not like, oh my gosh, I'm running low on the spirit. I need to be, you know, filled up again. But I think it's a reminder of 
further surrender, further gratitude, further humbling. You know, we, we trust, there is a point when we trust the gospel, and yet all throughout our life we keep trusting the gospel, which is a humbling, which yeah. God says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And there is, you know, communion when taken rightly is a humbling time, and I think there is a an impartation, renewal of grace that happens in our life to mm -hmm. carry on and persevere in the Christian life. And maybe that sounds a little vague, but th yeah. that's my yeah. best shot at I don't yeah. think it's a concrete, definable yeah. new experience of the Spirit, yeah. maybe, that, but I think something spiritual does happen that's yeah. beyond just a rote ritual. And we've, we've used the example of marriage before, right? When we when you get married, if we say, I love you, you know, at the altar with a pastor in front of us, uh, that's wonderful in that initial moment of marriage and commitment. But do we go on and say, well, I, I told you I loved you for us 32 years ago, honey. I mean, come on. You know, at the altar, I, I yeah, I'd be in trouble. But, but, and I think communion is like that in a way. It's, isn't it? It's, we, we know the Lord, but Dan, I totally agree. It's something I don't think we can define it so clearly, but do we actually receive the Holy Spirit at that moment? I, I, I think we received, we were baptized in the Spirit when we trusted in Christ initially, that transaction with God that we made. But do we say to the Lord again, Lord, I receive you. I love you. That humbling humbling time for us. I think so. Yeah, it's a wonderful time, isn't it? Yeah. Good. Maybe one, one more question, Louise? We might have to answer this after this. <laughs> If it was good, it was me. Okay, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, if it was unclear, it was Dan, too. Was... <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just the, it's the title of a book, right? And so I just was quoting that. I think, I think, um, I think what that author was getting at is this whole idea of, oh, I wish I lived during the time of Jesus. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could see Jesus. Oh, you know, and the whole point is, oh my gosh, I, I'm sending you another helper, another advocate, right? And um, that we shouldn't be covetous or, or longing for, as if this is some, you know, secondhand era. I love the way Ken said it. If anything, the way the apostles talk about it, this is an even greater mm -hmm. era mm -hmm. to be involved in. So that, that's all where that was coming yeah. from. All right, one more in the back. Sorry, sorry to confuse you. So the, the question is, if I heard you correctly, did, did Jesus ever work a miracle before he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. Did I get that? Okay. That's a good question. 
And I think, scripturally, you know, what we see in Scripture, although, well, let me say this first. I, I think in Scripture the answer is no. Right, that he was baptized by the Holy Spirit, he was tempted by the devil, and then he began his three, a little over three years of, of, as he said, being publicly disclosed to Israel, right? And that's when he began to work miracles. Yeah. Could he have... That's a good question. I, it's out, so here's the gospel of Dan and Ken again. I, <laughs> you know, if Jesus, from the moment of concept, conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was fully God and fully man, right? He existed before he became a man, took on human flesh, and came into our world, right? Eternally existed as God the Son, took part in creation, all of that. And so as God... I'd have to say, yes, he could have. But the other, the other thing happening with, and this is, this is really amazing because it's an example to us, too, that Jesus, in submitting himself to the Father's will, even as God the Son, was filled with the Holy Spirit with his baptism, right? His water baptism, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and submitted himself to the Father's will and worked or, or healed, did ministry in the power of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And there are different passages in the Gospels that talk about Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And it's, it's a huge example to us, right? And I think that's part of what's going on there. When Jesus says to the disciples, you'll do greater works than I did because I go to my Father and I'm sending the gift of the Spirit, it seems like that's what he may be, in part, at least, referring to if we, as sinful people, which he was not, but if we submit ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God really can use us in amazing ways, right? I don't know if that helps with your question, but... You know, one of the yeah. things, too, and, and we're really going off-road gospel. Of, yeah, but, um, <laughs> we get you know, to do one that of the things, there's two things that, that are interesting. You know, one, and this is something that I've come to more and more appreciate um, later as I've grown as a Christian, that when um, theologians talk about the death of Jesus, they talk about his act of righteousness and his passive righteousness. The passive righteousness is his submission on the cross, which, which is phenomenal and it's what we focus on. But his act of righteousness is the perfect life he lived for the three, three years he walked on this earth. And it, it's fascinating to me, to us, that the, for the first 30 years, he lived a pretty boring life, right? So you have this moment you know, where his parents, yeah. like some of you have left kids in the nursery, they left him in the temple, and <laughs> right. he's teaching amazing. Hopefully and, not tonight, though. And he's right. impressing people, right? But by and yeah. large, we get this sense that he's, you know, he's following in his father's footstep. He's an apprentice. He's a car- carpenter, and it's pretty mundane. And yet, even in those moments, he's living a perfectly righteous life. That's why um, it, there are these um, books called um, apocryphal gospels, right? And one of these gospels says there's, there's a miracle that the, 
young uh, Jesus performs where he looks at clay pigeons and, right? It says something yeah. like that, yeah. and they fly off and flutter. And, you know, because the boy Jesus could do that. And yet, the, you know, the church said, no, this is malarkey, right? This is not gospel. This is not part of the canon. And I think, again, it goes back to this whole idea of this perfect yeah. righteousness that Jesus is living, right? Which, which in some sense, when it comes to the cross, those, those 30 years matter. They're not yeah. wasted. So you come to the final three years of, again, ushering in the kingdom, leading up to the, you know, the king, repent, right? Mm-hmm. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, um, so the question is, could he? But the question is, why didn't he? And I, I think that's yeah. equally important to, to think about, mm-hmm. so... All right. Thank you so much. As Ken said, we'll be available. And um, we love being part of a church that hungers and thirsts to know more about God. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we um, saw today, let us keep in step, living by the Spirit, day by day, moment by moment, drawing upon his strength, his power for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.